0: So that's my introduction, so welcome. (laughs) You're still with me, that's great. Um, So we're in Hebrews, you can turn there if you want, but I wanted to ask you a question. We'll we'll go a little bit lighter, Um, came out the the gate heavy-handed. How many of you guys have ever been um, either at a, a water park or like a hotel resort thing where they had a lazy river? How many of you have been in that lazy river and you're just like, yes. This thing is awesome, right? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, at least you know what a lazy river is, I'm sure. What is it? What is it that we love about a lazy river? Just give me some some things that we love about it. We can be lazy. We can be lazy. Oh that's good. Yes. Weightlessness, okay. What else? Pool floaties. Pool floaties? Okay, sure. What else? It does the work for us. It does the work for us, all right? We don't have to do anything, right? We're just kind of floating. Yeah? What else? What else do we love about that lazy river? You can beat the sky. Okay, sure, yeah. You, Sun, tan. Sun tanning. Sun No, this is the kind of these are the real answers I'm looking for. Because that's the reality. You're not going to the lazy river, really, Heidi, to, to pray to God. At least I don't think you are. Maybe you are, but the reality is it's it's fun, it doesn't it doesn't require anything of us, right? You grab a tube, you lay there, and you just float. Yes? Yes. Okay. That's Let's be real here. Like, that's, that's why we do that. And the reason I ask that, because I was thinking of a good example as we're looking at chapter two this morning of what, what's a, like a parallel. And it's not a, a perfect parallel, but I think there's some, some parallels that we can draw anyway from this idea that there's a tendency for us sometimes to drift, and one of the things that the writers of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews talks about today is being aware of the drift because as we're in that lazy river as somebody said I think Anthony you don't have to do anything you get in the tube and you just float where do you go in a big circle in a big circle but but ultimately what decides the direction the current. You have no control. Have you ever seen people try to get out of those things? Like, there goes my exit. Like, You, you just have no control. <laughs> you go wherever that thing goes, and you're okay with it. Because that's that's the nature of that thing. But the reality is, in life, we can also be just drifting. Casually moving along and letting the circumstances, our surroundings, the people in our lives we're just kind of cruising through and bouncing from one thing to the next. And I think if we're honest, every one of us has had a season in our life where we've just kind of been floating, drifting as we go. Would that be accurate to say? Yeah. So if you are a note taker this morning, what I'm calling the message is fighting the drift. Fighting against the drift. And we're going to be, again, in Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read a couple of verses for us, and then we will walk through this. So Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at the first uh, nine verses. This is what the Word of God says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, Lord, we just come to you right now again. We ask that you would help us to see from your word this morning what it is that you have for us. God, your word is living and active, and it's there for our edification, for our training in righteousness, uh, but also there for um, correction and rebuke and these kinds of things. So, God, whatever it is that you have for us from your word, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to listen, God, to your spirit's leading. And I pray you speak through me, God, with with boldness and accuracy. And, um, yeah, we just ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, so friends, if you have any questions about the message today, you can text them to the number on the screen, which is my number. Um, Mike is out of town, so it's just just me me up here. But I'm happy to to address those questions if you have any toward the end of the the service. Alright, so um, if you were here last week, I think in the last two weeks, Mike did a great job of walking us through all of chapter one. Now, I was supposed to preach last week, that was the schedule, and then Mike got handed the big old chapter on angels which he absolutely loved. You couldn't tell from last week. Like, that's his wheelhouse, right? Um, but I think he did a great job. I, I loved what he, what he said. But chapter 2, at least in my translation, there's a word there that we need to pay attention to. What's the first word of Hebrews chapter 2? Sure, yeah, in ESV, it's therefore. So you may have heard us in the past or other people say this kind of cheesy, corny kind of thing. But if you see that word, basically everything that just was said... Is about to be explained. So all of chapter one is here laying these things out. Therefore, this is what it is to follow. So the idea being everything that was said, what is it there for? We're about to find out in chapter two. Yeah, it's a little bit cheesy, but. So he's basically saying all of chapter one, if you were to summarize it, that Jesus is supreme above all things. And what did he really drive home, the author, in chapter 1, that Jesus is greater than the, the angels, right? Jesus is greater than the angels. And if you, you stick with us through this study, you're going to find again and again and again, it's Jesus is greater than, Jesus is greater than, Jesus is greater than. He's going to keep unpacking all these things that Jesus is greater than. And that's why we're calling the series Elevating Jesus Right, where he's being elevated above all things, and because Jesus and his message are greater than anything else, the author says, "Listen, pay attention." That's his words, not mine. But listen and pay attention. Verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. I want to also note um, we haven't spent a lot of time unpacking this part yet, but. Part of what the the, the writer is doing is it is making a big deal about elevating Jesus above all the other things that the Hebrew people want to put above him. But also, he's writing to a people who are under tremendous persecution. These people are facing a lot of trials and difficulties. And so he's trying to encourage them. And you're gonna see as we go that he is calling them to endure to push through, not only elevate Jesus above the angels and the Torah and all these things, but elevate Jesus in their own lives so that they can push through whatever it is that they're going through. Does that make sense? So it's kind of a two-sided thing. We're elevating Jesus in a couple of different ways. And so there's a great call for them just to hold fast and endure the suffering that they're facing. But how many of you know it's a lot easier to drift away from something when life is difficult? Or even unmanageable. Think about trying to stay healthy or eat right. Some of you may be kind of teetering on those New Year's resolutions at this point, right? But isn't it always the case, like, okay, I'm going to eat right, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to go to the gym, and you're doing great, and then all of a sudden life just falls apart in front of you, and then just I can't find any time to cook. I'm I'm, I just what it feels like sometimes, right? It's Difficult to maintain those things when life is crumbling around you. It's easier to drift toward unhealthy habits, right? So, in this message of elevating Jesus above all things, it's also a call to elevate Jesus in our own lives so as not to wander from the truth. That's what he's telling us. I think. I've seen it in other people's lives, but certainly in my own life, there are a lot of ways that we can wander from the truth, but I'm going to talk about three, three ways that we can wander away from the truth. And these are true in life in general, but I think they're also true in our spiritual walk. So the first thing that makes us wander or is something that we wander toward is the things that we've always done always easy to wander toward the things that we've always done. What is it that is most familiar or most comfortable? Anyone have a tendency to drift back into the things that you've always done? All of us, right? Just the reality of it. You've experienced this. But think about it in this context. Spiritual persecution, right? So this is you now. Maybe you're catching some some flack at work or in your neighborhood because of your faith. And you kind of pull back a little bit. You're like, whoa, I'm not sure I like this. (laughs) Next thing you know, you're drifting back into some of those old habits that may not be the best kinds of things for you to be doing, but they're familiar. And so one of the things we need to fight against is that drift toward things that are comfortable, the things that we've always done. That's number one. Number two is we have a tendency to drift toward what everyone else is doing. Right? Right? This one may not seem so bad if everyone around you is doing good and godly things. Like oh, I don't want to be like them. Let's do that. But in this context, that's that's not the case, I don't think, because he's talking about drifting towards something. In other words, they're not putting forth a ton of effort to stay the course. They're 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 moving slowly away from something. So that means you're actually starting to move toward the not so good things that everyone else is doing. Maybe it's just because it's easier. Maybe you just don't feel like putting up the fight in this moment. doesn't matter what the reasons are, but we need to be identify the fact that sometimes we drift away from the things of God toward the things that everyone else is doing. Yes? All right. That's none of you, though, I know. None of you do that. I'm confident. You never just do what everyone else is doing just to fit in. Especially you in the back. Right? Right? All right, the third thing, and this one I think we can all understand in life, but there's some some spiritual application as well, is that we drift toward the things that get immediate results. We want change now. We want things now. We're instantly (coughs) gratified. We want it now. But when you think about spiritual growth, you think about maturity, do the words immediate results come to mind? Some of us are battling the same things we've been battling for decades. I know I am. Right? Immediate results is not something that (laughs) that I associate with in terms of spiritual growth and development. What comes to mind, though, are activities that lead to perceived results. In other words, the fact that I'm doing certain things, certain activities, it means that I'm getting good and quick results. For example... You're reading your Bible every day. Well, good job. I mean, that's great. We should be doing that, shouldn't we? Absolutely. But if I'm simply reading pages from a book with no application that leads to transformation, am I doing myself a disservice? I would say yes, in that you may be thinking that you're getting the results simply by doing, but that is not the case. I can read this all day long and have, have no impact on me because I'm just reading words. I'm going through an exercise. I'm just going on automatic pilot. Now, don't get me wrong. This word is incredibly powerful, and it has a working in ways that we can't understand sometimes. But just us as humans skimming through pages is probably not going to lead to the kind of transformation that God has in mind for us. Think about a boat on the open sea. No sail, no motor. It's just there. Is that boat going to stay in the same place? No, No, of course not. It's going to go wherever it wants. Will it get to where it's going? Maybe. 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 But do we want to take that chance? Absolutely we don't want to take that chance. So how do we fight the drift away from spiritual health? Well, he tells us, pay closer attention. Okay, I'm paying attention. What is it that I'm paying attention to now? Because I want to pay close attention and I want to not drift away. Well, he says, pay close attention to and obey the word of God. Pay closer attention to this and obey it. That's ground zero. That's what we started this year with a scripture-based challenge. A 31-day challenge to be in the Word every day and to, to think about it, not just read it, to write out the scriptures, to think, our, think on it, meditate on it, and write it down. And many of you have been doing that. And today's the 29th day. There's only a couple more days left. It's been encouraging to see that happen. It's foundational to our walk with Jesus. You remember, uh, two weeks ago, I think, Mike was talking about the uh, the Hebrew word shema, And it's the idea of hearing. And in Hebrew, there is only one word to describe hearing something and then doing it. We have listen and then obey. In Hebrew, Shema means you're hearing it and you're doing it. There is no hearing without doing. It's incomplete. So we've got to pay attention to the Word of God that proclaims the truth about who God is. This is how we keep from drifting. In a commentary I read by Al Mole, he says this. He says, Orthodoxy and obedience are the oars we must use for fighting against the straying current of spiritual drift. That is the word of God and obedience. Being doers of the word. That's how we do it. We fight the drift by beating a path to the word of God. You remember that from January 1st, I think it was, or second, or whatever. Beating a path to the word of God, like consistently you're, you're trailblazing, but at some point it becomes a clear path so that when darkness comes and when tragedy hits, you have a clear path that you have forged to the word of God. You know where to go. You know what it says. You know how to rely upon it. It shapes your life. That's why we have fight clubs. Some people call them discipleship, D D groups, all kinds of different things. The word fight club is intentional. Because part of this is we're fighting the drift away from spiritual health together. Amen. So we don't want to drift in the Christian walk. We don't want to drift toward things that we've always done. We don't want to drift toward what everybody else is doing. We don't want to drift to the things that we think get us instant results. We want to be intentional. Yes? Amen. We have to be intentional. Okay, all that in first one. And you're like, God, we're going to be here a long time. <clears throat> we're not, I promise. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Start picking up verse 2. It says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape it if we neglect such a salvation? Pause. Okay, so these verses are basically explaining the bigger picture of what's going on in here. He says, For the message declared by the angels... What message are we talking about here? Mike set this up last week, so if you were here last week and you were like paying attention, engaged, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What is the message that was declared by angels that the writer is talking about here? Yes, but more specific. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Yes, these are these are partial answers. Partial answers. Mike spent. I, I went and listened to the message, so I know that he talked about this. Very specifically, in Deuteronomy, he talked about the angels delivering something to Moses. Mike is going to be very disappointed. <laughs> because this wasn't even a part of his passage. He came out of the passage and was setting it up for me. It's the Torah. The law. It was given to Moses by the angels on behalf of God. God gave the angels the message, the message was delivered, the Torah, the law, everything that guides the, the Jewish people is that is what he's talking about for since the message declared by angels, the law, the Mosaic covenant. Got it? Okay, if you're not quite with me on that, put up Deuteronomy 30 chapter 19 or th- verse 19 says, "I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you That is the Torah. I've set this law before you. Life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. This law, this Torah that was given to the Jewish people was everything to them. It impacted every aspect of their life. And that's pretty straightforward, right? If you do it, if you obey, you're going to live. However... (laughs) If you don't, it is not going to turn out well for you at all. And that's what he says. Under the old covenant, under that old way, every transgression, every act of disobedience, every time that you fell short, the law demanded justice, a just penalty. You can go back and read all of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all these things, and you say, oh, if you do this, you got to do this. If you do this, this is going to happen to you. Like this constant back and forth, right? And they knew it. The Jewish people knew the law inside and out. Only now, the writer of the Hebrews, he comes in and says that Jesus is greater than all of that. And in fact, he actually fulfilled all of the law. That which no other human being was able to do. Did you know that was the purpose of the law? To show people that they couldn't do it themselves? That was the whole purpose of the law. God gave us huge unattainable thing for the Jewish people for centuries to walk out and they failed again and again and again and again and again only to point them to the fact that they needed somebody else to come in on their behalf to do what they could not do on their own. That was the whole point. And so the author is moving from the lesser to the greater. So he says, if the old covenant that came from God delivered by angels, if that thing demanded justice for sin how much more is God going to judge those who reject the gospel with the message that comes from his own son, Jesus? You see what he's doing there? He's like, the old law, that demanded justice. Now this new law that's come, this new covenant from Jesus, that also demands justice. But how much more so that it comes from Jesus himself? And he asks the question, how can we escape judgment if we neglect salvation? The answer is what? We can't. We can't. The gospel is paramount in this life and its seriousness, my friends. It can't be overstated. It cannot be overstated. And it's a warning to the people that Jesus is greater than the Torah and that there is still judgment coming. There's what the Bible calls a reckoning for sin and disobedience. But the answer is found in Jesus and not in the law. That's what these verses say. Make sense? sense? Okay, again, to this audience, this is mind-blowing. Like, they just cannot comprehend or grasp what the author is saying, because it goes against everything they've ever known. All right, let's look at the rest of verse 3. He says, uh, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts (laughs) of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Okay, so basically these verses are, are, again, building on the idea that Christ is superior over the angels, and he kind of adds to the weight of his message, and, and hopefully you can see just what a big deal this is, and, and how hard this writer is having to work to convince these people. Like, he just keeps going back to it. He says it, oh, let me go back to it. So next week you're going to hear more of this, and you're like, okay, God, we get it. All right, it's, it's not me, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> walking through the text, and, and hopefully you're seeing Man, he's working hard to convince the people of this new reality. So four things very quickly that he says that give weight to this message that Christ is superior. One is that it was declared by the Lord. That's what he says there in uh, verse 3b. It was declared at first by the Lord. Remember Mike started out the, uh, the, the uh, chapter 1 with the idea that God is speaking. In fact, if you flip back to the beginning, it says, Hebrews 1.1, one, one, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last day, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is speaking. That was his whole point of the first message. And are we listening? So God has spoken to us. It's declared by the Lord. Number two, it was attested or was confirmed by the people that heard it. So who were the first people to hear the message of Christ? The people that walked with him. Who was that? The disciples, right? The 12? Uh, throw up Ephesians 2.20. Let's get some reference points for them as their authority. So this whole message, this idea, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's an authority principle that the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, heard this message and they conveyed it. And there's authority in that. Number three is that God attested him or testified to the validity of of the gospel through signs and wonders. Tons of that happening in all the gospels, right? Healings, casting out demons, all of these things that Christ did, were they just so people could go, woo, look at that, that was awesome. Was it just to get some attention? Was it just for the benefit of the people that received the, the healings and the miracles? No. What was the point of it? it to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Let me show you the power that I have. So it was tested, attested by these things. And then the last thing is that the gifts from the Holy Spirit, they also affirm the truthfulness of the message. That's what he says there in verse 4. And by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, we all know that we gifts of the Spirit are given to each believer. And those gifts are not for ourselves. They're not for our own entertainment. They're not for fun. These gifts bear witness that Christ is the resurrected Lord. Throw up Ephesians 4, 8, please. One more. There we go. Therefore it says, when he ascended, when, when Christ left this earth, he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So as Jesus ascended, as he was resurrected and went up, he left gifts for the church. These gifts bear witness to the message of Christ and him crucified. So those are just four quick things that are just amplifying the fact that Jesus is greater than all of this. Okay, let's move forward. Let's finish this thing off. Verses five through nine. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection at his feet. Now, putting everything subjected to him, he left nothing outside his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything under control. I'm going to stop right there because we're going to dig into that a little bit. But basically, this final section is painting the picture of the reality of what we're fighting for. We're not just out there duking it out, trying to, trying to avoid the drift for no reason. There's a beautiful reality that we are moving toward. But this picture paints or the author points for us, I should say. He tells us to pay a lot of attention, much closer attention, to the word of God and move toward Jesus with all that they have. Just keep going. But he does this by he does this by bringing the whole storyline of the Bible into view in just these couple of verses. And remember, he's addressing an audience. This Hebrew Jewish audience would know. The Old Testament scriptures inside and out. They know exactly what he's talking about when he refers to Old Testament scriptures. And he expects that we also understand. And some of us are not as versed in the Old Testament. And so it's kind of like we got to play a little bit of catch up in this. But I want you to see how he expects that we see Jesus as the fulfillment and the climax of the storyline in the Bible. He does this in just a few verses. So verse 5 the author brings up this topic of the earth being subjected to rulership or under dominion. Now, when you hear the earth being under dominion, where in the Bible does your mind go to first? Genesis. Genesis all the way back to the beginning in the garden. Why? Well, let's look at Genesis one26 I'm going to go to this side. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over basically everything, right? So God has given dominion or control or authority to humanity in the garden. We know that, yes? Yes. No surprises there. But then, back in Hebrews we have this Old Testament Scripture being quoted in verses 6 through 8. And so if you have an old school Bible in your hand you can tell me where this scripture is coming from. What is this scripture quoted in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8? Psalm Psalm 8? Psalm 8 8 what? Psalm 8, 4 through 6. All right, so how did you know that? There's a footnote in your Bible, yes. That was a, an intentional question. Yeah, if you if you don't know, if you have an old school paper Bible, and you're reading through this section, you see that mine has a little M, and then I drop down, and I see in the margin, oh, it says Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. So there's a way to we can reference right away to know, oh, this comes from this. Okay, so Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, good. We know how to find it. Who wrote that? Who wrote Psalm 8? Are you guessing? Psalm 8. Who wrote it? You know it's David? How? Nope, you're going too far. How do you know David wrote it? Because it says in Psalm 8, this is the Psalm of David. no, No trick questions here. Just trying to help you realize that it's not just me saying this stuff. (laughs) There's ways in which we can verify everything that I'm saying here. It says in Psalm 8, this is the Psalm of David. So yes, okay, David wrote this. Good. So in this Psalm, Psalm 8, David is actually making a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. That's what he's doing. He's thinking about dominion and control, and he's giving his two cents On what he sees in in Genesis 1 and 2. And he marvels at the idea that even though man, the original image bearer of God, was made a little less than God. God shares his power and authority with us. He's just blown away that he's, he's sharing his authority with man. Made him ruler over the earth. David's just like, that's amazing. That's wonderful. That's what he's doing in this psalm. But now, stick with me. The author of Hebrews, he's interpreting the psalm of David in verses 6 through 8 as ultimately pointing to the perfect image bearer, the Davidic king, Jesus. So he's tying the whole entire biblical story together. He goes from the garden to King David, to Jesus as the fulfillment. You see how he did that? Just by going back to this psalm and this idea of dominion, it drives home the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy, and he is greater than the angels. That's what he's doing here. It, it seems a little bit odd how he, how he writes it, but that's exactly what he's doing. And the Hebrews, would have, the Jewish people would have understood exactly what he's talking about. All right, so Paul also picks up in this style of writing, he uses the, the language of the first Adam and the second Adam. How many of you are familiar with that language? First Adam, second Adam. Okay. Or again, no trick questions here. Who's the first Adam? Adam. Adam. In the garden, Adam, right? Who's the second Adam? Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. Okay, so just so you follow me here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 47. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man was from heaven. So we understand we have this Adam, first Adam, second Adam correlation that Paul is making. yes? Yes? Okay. Now, here's the kicker of it all. Let's go to verse 21 of that same chapter. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus fulfilled everything the first Adam failed in. He was also made a little lower than the angels, just long enough, the writer says, to taste death for who? for everyone, for all people, and that he is crowned with glory and honor and he redeems mankind through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the author is saying, pay attention to this reality. This is truth, tying in the whole storyline of the Bible to see the fulfillment is actually in Christ. He says, let it shape your life. Let it influence everything you do pay closer attention to what the Word says. That's what he's telling us. One scholar says this, he goes, the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. The second Adam was plunged into death for the sake of humanity. Christ is greater than the Torah and he's greater than the angels. Amen? Amen. Okay, I want to go back and clean up one more thing before we close because some of you might have been like, wait skipped over this part that I've got some questions about. And that part is in verse 8. Let's look at verse 8. He says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So everything was put in subjection to Jesus, but we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what exactly is happening here? This is double talk or what's happening here what we're seeing here is what some people have identified as the tension of already not yet already not yet when you think about the kingdom of god and king god's kingdom coming there's an already not yet tension that exists in other words so the kingdom of god the reign of christ his rulership in some senses was already inaugurated but we're still waiting for the kingdom to culminate, right? What's the culmination of this kingdom? His return, right? When he comes again, the kingdom is culminated. It's consummated. Yeah. And and Mike mentioned this before. He said there's is there still a god of this world, a small g god, right? Who's the small g god of this world? The devil, Satan. And he has fleeting influence and control over the world. Sin still very much exists in this world, does it not? Yes. There's evil and all manner of bad things all over, is there not? Yes. And ever since sin entered into humanity and into the world, and man lost dominion, he lost that control he was given, this has been the case and it will be the case until the kingdom is completed. In actuality, this, re- this thing this idea that, man, Satan is is ruling this earth and we are um, in the midst of this broken humanity, it magnifies our need for a savior, doesn't it? It shows us that we need all the help that we can get until he comes to reclaim that which was lost through sin. But this, listen to this, the perceived chaos that's going on all around us should not cause any doubt in our hearts concerning the legitimacy and efficacy of the gospel. The fact that Jesus accomplished on the cross salvation. God is in the business of restoration, making all things new. This is why he came to the earth. We are not... (coughs) as we should be, right? Sin has taken its toll on every one of us. But in the person of Christ, we see ourselves as we can be. And in the work of Christ, we see ourselves as we will be. Now that's not mine. I'd love to take credit for that, but I can't. I'm going to read that again. We are not as we should be. Sin has taken its toll. But in the person of Christ, That is, in Jesus, we see ourselves as we can be. He lived perfectly, free from sin, pleasing God in every way. In Christ, we see the person we can be. And in the work of Christ, in his accomplishment of salvation on the cross, we see ourselves as we will be. That is what we are fighting toward and what we are constantly drifting away from because of the brokenness in this world. We are fighting toward that. That is the goal. That's the direction. That's what we will be. And the salvation that some are in the danger of neglecting is worth every bit of effort we have to give. Now, we earn nothing. right? This is a free gift. But we do have a role in fighting against the drift, fighting against the current, avoiding the temptations of this world. And we look to the promises here and throughout the Bible that we're actually going to rule and reign with Christ. Those are promises that we've been given. So my encouragement to all of us is that we stay the course. Remain faithful. Keep your eyes on Jesus And avoid the drift. Fight against the current. And what's the foundation of it all? This. The word of God. Every day. Beating a path to it. Letting it just saturate our lives. That we might stand on it and not our own ability. Stand on Christ and his finished work. Amen? Alright, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your mercy, your grace. That's new every morning. God, your mercies are new every morning, and we need it. We need your mercy. We need your strength. We need your help. God, we need it all. Because this world has a strong pull. The things of this earth are very attractive. And the enemy knows how to get in, distract us, and pull us away. And oftentimes, Lord, we know it's not immediate. It is a slow fade, a a slow drift away God, we want to fight against it. We want to be intentional. We want to live our lives on purpose. So help us to do that, I pray. Help us to build our lives on the truth of the fact that you redeemed humanity. You saved us from a life of hopelessness, aimless wandering with questions and no answers and fear and worry and anxiety with with no comfort you've delivered us from all of that lord we just call on the name of jesus and believe in the in the truth and the reality that what you accomplished on the cross is what the 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 old covenant the torah the law could not accomplish what the offerings of the priests and all the things over those centuries could not accomplish, you accomplished. Your sinless blood poured out the only true, authentic, genuine payment for our sin. And God, we just need to turn, repent, and believe in that truth. And we can experience the reality of love, acceptance, salvation, hope, and joy. God, help us to stand firm and fight the drift. We ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen.